You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Cyberwire X, a series of specials where we highlight important security topics affecting security professionals worldwide. I'm Rick Howard, the Chief Security Officer, Chief Analyst, and Senior Fellow at the CyberWire. And today's episode is titled, Cybersecurity Predictions for 2022. Since we're at the end of 2021, it's time to gather some smart security professionals and forecast what trends and attacks will be most prevalent in the year ahead and how organizations should prepare for the new year. A program note, each CyberWire X special features two segments. In the first part, we'll hear from industry experts on the topic at hand. And in the second part, we'll hear from our show's sponsor for their point of view. And since I brought it up, here's a word from today's sponsor, Keeper Security. Keeper is the top-rated cybersecurity platform for protecting organizations of all sizes from the most common password-related data breaches and cyber attacks. Did you know that 81% of data breaches are caused by weak password security? Keeper is more than a password manager. It's a scalable and customizable security platform that includes industry-leading features such as automated user provisioning, role-based enforcement policies, SSO SAML integration, advanced reporting compliance, breach watch dark web monitoring, and more. Members of the CyberWire community will receive a free three-year personal password manager when they take a business demo. Visit keeper.io slash CyberWire to learn more. And we thank Keeper for sponsoring our show. I'm joined by Kevin McGee. He's the CSO of Microsoft Canada and an old friend of mine. Kevin, welcome to CyberWire X. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. We're recording this show right before the holiday break here in the U.S. And as is obligatory of all security podcasts, this is our prediction show for 2022. And, you know, I think it's the law that every InfoSec podcast does one of these. So we're doing ours. So Kevin and I are going to make some guesses about what the community will see next year. But I promise we will steer away from lame predictions like, you know, ransomware will continue. Duh, of course that's going to happen. But we may get into some ransomware nuance. Let's see where this goes. So, Kevin, we're going to start uh, by something you and I were joking about in prep for the show, about how disappointed you and I were both going to be for things that we both want to see happen in 2022, but know that we won't see it for lots of reasons. So let's start with our favorite, adversary playbooks. Why don't you tell me why you define adversary playbooks when you're out in the world to your customers? I really thought adversary playbooks would be the way the industry would be going uh, much sooner. And I'm hoping this year is the year we make the breakthrough. I use the analogy of we seem to be as an industry trying to catch arrows when we should be focusing on figuring out how to take on the adversary, which is the archer. Let's talk about what I think it means, which is, uh, you know, it's the idea that there's about 250 or so known adversary groups. And this is not attributing to any kind of people or nation state. It's just that here's a collection of attack patterns that we've given unique names. Uh, and they work on the internet on any given day running various campaigns. But because of the MITRE attack framework, 
We know how most of these groups operate across the intrusion kill chain in terms of tactics and procedures. So you and I have been saying for the last couple of years that we would love to be able to have prevention controls in place across our security stack for all the known things that adversaries do, which we are not doing very well. And uh, I have this dream with automation, with SOAR, with AI and whatnot, that we'll be able to fingerprint the adversary. And as they change their TTP, we'll be able to modulate the shields in a Star Trek sort of fashion. Um, oh, I love that. I, I love that analogy. Okay, That's a new one for you. I like yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe this is the year that we, we make that leap. I think uh, a couple of things that are, are making us move forward, uh, the MITRE DEFEND uh, approach to um, building a vocabulary and a framework for, for countermeasures as opposed to just to analyze attacks and whatnot. We're putting together some of the pieces. MITRE DEFENSE spelled D3-F-E-N-D because, you know, lead speak, is an add-on to the MITRE ATT&CK framework funded by the NSA with the design goal to review adversary techniques and procedures across the intrusion kill chain and to devise specific countermeasures for each. In other words, the attack framework is a collection of what the cyber adversaries are doing, and Minor Defend is what we as network defenders can do to stop it. Taking the same approach that we did for analyzing attacks and how we define and build a common vocabulary for countermeasures, I think maybe is that, that next piece of the puzzle that could give us um, that next step to define it. My dream of uh, self-modulating Star Trek shields around our, our resilient organizations. But uh, you're absolutely right. When I talk to, uh, say, a critical infrastructure customer, they know who the adversaries they're most concerned about. So why aren't we focusing on protecting them from that adversary uh, as opposed to the specific techniques? It, if you think about the physical world, if you knew someone, an individual or group was going to harm you, you would build protections against that individual or group, not against knives, poison, gunshots, or all right. the actual weapons being used. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity we're missing. It also changes the economics. The more expensive we can make it for these groups, the more difficult we can make it for these groups. To, to mount successful attacks, the better chance you know, we have as a collective defense of really repelling them, uh, almost a herd immunity to their tools, tactics, and uh, procedures. Well, you mentioned automation, and that's going to be the key here. That's, I think that's one of the re- main reasons that we have not uh, embraced the MITRE attack framework or tracking adversaries by all their tactics and techniques across the kill chains because grabbing that information and doing something useful with it is really time-consuming, and the only way to fix it is with some sort of automation, DevSecOps kind of thing. I see things on the horizon, though. I'm wondering what your opinion is about this. DevSecOps is that other one we keep getting wrong um, yeah. every year. <laughs> they're, they're kind of combined there, right? I think DevSecOps solves a bunch of these problems. But one of the things on the horizon that I, I'm, uh, I see hope, I see a glimmer of hope, is uh, XDR. XDR has been around for, I don't know, the idea of it since about 2018 or so. Uh, and now vendors are starting to crank this thing out and sell it as a robust uh, tool. Uh, but here's what I like about it, Kevin. You tell me if I got this wrong. Before, you had to go out and buy a, a complete suite of tools to do everything. And then you had to automate uh, all of that, and it was just really hard. What I like about XDR is it's just connecting to the tools that you already have through APIs, right, and automating what you could do. You could automate the telemetry collection from the tools, whatever tools you have. And then if you're really good at this, you could automate the update to the configuration files. The vendors building these XDR tools don't have to have a tool for everything. They can just plug into what customers already have, and which will facilitate the automation of this. How, how off-base do you think I am for this? 
well, there's my prediction. I think we're going to finally give up trying to solve the great big problem and look at these are the tools we have available. How do we, we best utilize them? And automation, where I think a lot of the problems have been, is we've been trying to go full automation. So my prediction will be we'll find a middle ground. Uh, we'll become cyborgs where human-computer interaction will, will be the way. Some things that are automated and some things that are integrated, but then we'll have that human-driven, much like we're seeing the adversaries do with human-driven uh, ransomware and whatnot, where they're using tools and techniques where they automate portions, where they make decisions. Uh, I think... The promise of SOAR was always it was going to be fully automated, um, and we, we wouldn't need um, analysts. I, I think we're coming to the realization that's not the case. We're going to see technologies uh, like XDR that automate portions using an existing um, infrastructure you have or different tools you have, but then really just extend the abilities of the analyst uh, in a lot of ways so we can get more value or more work effort out of every analyst because we can't just throw more people at these problems. It's, it's not possible. They don't scale. All right, so let's move to another one you have. I thought this was really interesting. I, I had not considered this, although this has been one of my horror stories since I was a young InfoSec person, you know, back in the day. You mentioned in our prep work that ransomware, we've seen criminals do uh, availability attacks, like they encrypt everything so you can't get access to your data, or they do a confidentiality attack where they extort you. They say, we're, if you don't pay us, we're going to release this to the public. So both of those things were going on in the last year. But your third one that you're going to see is more prominent is integrity attack vector. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I haven't really seen evidence of this yet, but I'm search, searching for it. It's got to be coming because we see constant innovation in ransomware. It was something that just executed you know, dropped on your machine, uh, went after a certain amount of money, and if you paid it, great. If you didn't, it was all a volume business. Then it became a very much more sophisticated business. Specialization started to occur. And then there was competition among cyber criminals, you know, for encrypting systems with one vector. We saw the double extortion threat vector being used very effectively, either for leverage or for additional uh, revenues for uh, the cyber criminal gangs. I see an innovation at some point where we look at data integrity, where the threat actor maybe says, hey, I changed a number of blood types in your hospital information system as a ransom vector or whatnot. What really worries me about this is you can tell when your systems are encrypted. They either are or they aren't. You have access to them, they don't. You can be given a sample document to know if you've been doxxed or, or they're, they're threatening to extort. With integrity attacks, it's going to be very difficult to determine whether they're legitimate or not and to what degree the, um, the cyber threat actors will be able to leverage the these types of techniques to build new innovative um, ransom scenarios. So those are the type of thing and I'm I'm thinking about. I'm using some game theory approaches, some tabletop, and just asking other folks, how can we start thinking about and preparing for attacks like this before the threat actors innovate in this direction? The third prediction you made, Kevin, was uh, interesting to me too. You're, I, I think you're predicting that the cyber insurance market is going to collapse. Am, am I exaggerating that, or uh, what? What are you saying? Well, I don't think that cyber insurance is going to collapse, um, but <laughs> it's these renewals are coming up now with a lot of businesses that wrote paper two, three years ago, and it's getting much more expensive. So there is a business imperative now for governments to start taking action to solve some of these cyber criminal problems because they are now business problems. If uh, you can't operate a vehicle without insurance, are you going to be able to 
operate a business in the future without cyber insurance. So these are the type of challenges that policymakers and legislators are going to have to wade in on. And they have avoided it to this point um, because it's been sort of on the fringes. It's now starting to impact national security. It's starting to impact the economy in, in big ways. And, uh, you know, we, we have relied on mitigating the risk by outsourcing it to a third party, i.e. insurance. I think in a lot of cases, businesses are just not going to be able to afford to write some of these renewals. What are we going to do next? So my prediction is that uh, the rising price of uh, cyber insurance is going to uh, force legislators and, and policymakers to take some action that maybe they've been holding off uh, in ransomware and maybe some drastic action um, in, uh, in the very near future. Well, I, the thing I've been disappointed with in the insurance market is something you and I both agree on is uh, our ability to forecast risk. This is something that cybersecurity people are really bad at. But I, you know, these cyber insurance people, they, they have all the math people. They understand, you know, predicting when bad things will happen. And they can, they've known how to do this in other areas of our lives, you know, in order to make a profit in that business world. I'm really disappointed that they haven't been able to figure this out that, you know, this is 30 years into cybersecurity. Uh, and, uh, and I've even read some articles this year, this past year, that they've given up on it because their prediction models are so bad. They, ha- they haven't come up with a way to forecast risk in these areas. I don't, are you seeing any of that in your readings? I think the actuarial tables, I'm not an expert in this area, um, are comprised of data over you know decades. So you think about car safety, you know, there's been some iterations, uh, but I mean, seatbelts, then we added airbags and whatnot, but there's enough data and there's enough people driving cars and there are enough known situations, intersections, highways, and whatnot that they can control the variables. The problem is with, with our industry, things change on a dime. Um, you know, when... Um, when there's a new exploit found or a zero day, it can really just completely change the, the threat landscape. And I think it, it breaks the models of insurance that were built on sort of physical um, insurance, fires, um, accidents and whatnot. Uh, and, and it's hard to extrapolate that. And there just isn't enough data. Maybe it's a longer stretch of data or I, I don't know what the models will be. But uh, I know it's definitely um, the models are not as accurate as they should be, which means prices are driving up, uh, which means that um, you know we're going to have to start looking at uh, a different approach to, to, uh, to insurance. This is where I push back a bit, too. You and I, we're both students of the game. We've read all the most important cybersecurity risk forecasting books, like Super Forecasting by Tedlock, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk by Hubbard and Syerson, and Measuring and Managing Information Risk, a Fair Approach by Freund and Jones. And we know that especially for cybersecurity, we all live in a stochastic world, meaning that there are no concrete answers like an on-off switch. Answers to the hard problems, like the ones that insurance companies are trying to forecast, like what are the chances that this specific customer will file a legitimate claim of material impact due to a cyber incident that the insurance company will have to pay out? That calculation doesn't reside in old-fashioned actuarial tables. That data doesn't exist. But you can find the answer in projected probability distributions. And scientists have used that technique to solve some of the hardest problems when data was scarce. Turing used probability distributions to crack the Enigma machine. And the scientists at Los Alamos used the technique to build the nuclear bomb. And Kevin, our favorite author, Neil Stevenson, in his book Seven Eves, writing about rocket ships trying to avoid space debris in orbit, His Neil deGrasse Tyson character says that at a certain point, the math calculation ceases to be Newtonian and is more about probability. 
In other words, missing debris in space is not about plugging numbers into a math formula and finding the correct course. It's more about calculating the likelihood of missing debris across a distribution of possible courses and making your best guess. And I know that makes people uncomfortable not being able to know the answer. But that method works for complex problems, and cyber insurance is a really complex problem. And I'm just frustrated that the cyber insurance companies haven't figured that out yet. And it may be uh, the government taking action to say, just like you can't operate a vehicle without um, insurance, you can't, you can't get a mortgage for your house without insurance. It, uh, it becomes ingrained in, in just how we do business uh, in the future. But uh, my prediction is they, they no longer can ignore it uh, in, in the coming year that uh, government policymakers are, are going to have to start thinking about this and taking action. Um, or losses are going to be catastrophic to the economy in general and continue to mount in a, in a time where inflation's rising, um, the pandemic is causing unemployment and whatnot. Um, this, this cannot be allowed to continue. So that's my prediction and I'll likely be wrong at the end of next year, but uh, it'd be interesting to see how, how it progresses this year. I will hold you to it next year, my friend. Um, I think you and I could literally talk about this for the next 17 hours, but uh, let's cut it off there. Is there any prediction you want to make that we haven't covered yet? I, uh, I just think um, having read um, Ghost Fleet, the uh, thought exercise at the beginning, the opening, you know, what would a, what would a next generation uh, cyber war look like? I've become fascinated with uh, satellites as a, an endpoint. Um, and I'm looking at uh, what are the new endpoints of the futures? We've Rick and I, uh, discussed cars and what on the past, uh, satellites, drones, some of these, these new technologies. At what point do we start to see uh, traditional attacks like ransomware or whatnot used in those spheres. Um, if you were to, to capture and, and lock out the GPS um, satellites or communication satellites, you know, as an attack vector, is that going to be a, uh, an attack vector we see in the coming year? Um, because that would be a, a, a very um, ripe target for cyber criminals that have the technical ability to do it. So um, I, I foresee satellites, drones, and some of these other non-traditional endpoints become uh, threat vectors for not just nation states, but cyber criminals in the coming year. Well, I love that prediction, especially as we expand internet connections out to space. I know there's a couple of companies launching satellites trying to figure out how to extend the backbone up there. And that's a whole nother phase that we haven't even considered. So I'm glad you threw it on this program. <laughs> that's a really good one. <laughs> Maybe it's not Star Wars. It's lasers and um, and uh, lightsabers. Maybe it'll be uh, hackers at keyboards uh, fighting the next uh, or the first space war. I'm not really sure. Finally, but, uh, <laughs> I have a cool job. I love it. <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll take the cyber threat landscape to space in, uh, in the coming year. All right. Perfect, man. Well, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the show and giving us your predictions for 2022. And I'll definitely bring you on for the end of your show next year so you can see how good you did. Thanks, Rick. Can't wait to see what we get wrong uh, this year and, and do it again next year. Next up is Dave's conversation with Craig Lurie, CTO and co-founder of Keeper Security, our show's sponsor. Before we jump into uh, some predictions here for 2022, let's take a minute uh, and just sort of look back on 2021. I know one of the things that you and your colleagues at Keeper uh, predicted as we went into 2021 was that we were going to see ransomware continue to be an issue here. And I think it's fair to say that you all nailed that one. When you look back on on our ransomware situation in 2021, 
Why do you think it, it was so bad? There's several factors. One, one of them is that, you know, we have, we have so much technology in our lives now. And, you know, we've got a lot of vulnerabilities in software. And you've got the expansion of that whole um, surface area, that whole attack surface is just expanding. So you have people working from home. You have now, instead of, instead of being in an office in a physical location, you have people from their houses that are accessing secure assets and so now you're dealing with devices that are maybe not that secure. Maybe they maybe they didn't load your your endpoint security. You know, maybe they don't have antivirus. Maybe they're out of date. You know, so now you have management of these potentially old and legacy devices um, that are now on the internet. Now you're dealing with things like your home networking devices. You know, what when was the last time you thought about deeply what router you have and is is the is the router software up to date? at your house or have your kids shared the Wi-Fi password with somebody and, you know, and someone that shouldn't have access has access. So you've just expanded this surface area, this attack surface, just so much wider. Yeah. As we head into 2022, what, uh, what do you suppose people can expect on the ransomware front? Well, I think, I mean, government's cracking down a lot more on it, right? So there's there's more prevention that's happening and people are, especially enterprises, are starting to um, to deploy more protection for users. They're starting to deploy things like um, getting rid of traditional VPNs and going with more zero trust models where um, non-VPN solutions are used to access assets. So I think that I think that while there, there is a ton of protection that's going into play there, um, but also, you know, you see things that happened like last week with, you know, the log4j vulnerability, things like that that are happening that that are continuing to expand. Um, and I think that you'll see more vulnerabilities like this, that it just exposed services and users um, as we go into 2022. I mean, you just, just in the last week, a lot of things have happened. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's fair to say that that ransomware is here to to stay. You know, one of the things that I think really took off in prominence throughout 2021 was zero trust and and that sort of coming to the fore as a, as a concept. And uh, lots of organizations are promoting that. Do you think zero trust is here to stay as well? Well, I do because you know the the language is now kind of everywhere. You know, marketing language product language. Um, so it's kind of the new, the new buzzwords um, in cyber. But also you have government agencies that are, that are now demanding that their software vendors are um, adhering to zero trust. And that's not just in the U.S., that's around the world. So you have, um, you have just more awareness of that. You have people fully understanding now that you know, traditional VPN solutions um, and trusting the perimeter is really not is really not the way to protect data and to protect applications. So I do think it's here to stay. And I think that it, that you're going to just see more and more products um, talking about zero trust. Um, um, you know, you're just going to see that companies and software and, and decision makers are going to be, they're going to be making the decision to choose products that are zero trust because they want to get out of that legacy mindset of trusting the perimeter. Do you have any insights for organizations looking to adopt zero trust or or increase how much they rely on it? I mean, it's 
it's my understanding that zero trust really is a, a journey that, you know, it's not just a sort of a switch that you can throw. Is, is that an accurate perception? Yeah, it is because, you know, it's not like you can just go into a little configuration screen and click the box, you know, so it's, it's the kind of thing where you have to, you have to look at all of your assets, you have to look at all of your services, how do people access it? What are your requirements? You know, maybe, maybe, you know, zero trust for you means something completely different than someone else. So I think it really just comes out to what services you need your users to access. Where does it need to live? How is it going to be locked down? Um, how is access control configured? You know, what identity provider you're going to use? You know, so really it comes down to a lot of choices. And I think it's, it's really more of a strategy and just understanding that when you deploy new software or you deploy like an identity product that you have to consider um, that users are not within an enterprise VPN anymore. They're, they're everywhere. And so it's just a lot of, a lot of decisions for a lot of different products. Yeah. So it's not just one little check the box sort of thing. It's just a new mindset. You know, as, as we look toward 2022, what sort of recommendations do you have for organizations to prioritize the things that they can do to protect themselves to, is there a particular order that you put things in? Well, I mean, for us, you know, obviously we're in, we're in the password security space. So, so we see that as the primary line of defense, you know, protecting your passwords, protecting your, your secrets, your assets um, that have access into other parts of your infrastructure is obviously critical. So, you know, we're, you know, we're always leading with that, you know, as, as being a critical aspect of protecting the organization. And of course, there's ensuring that you have endpoint protection and you have, um, you know, cloud-based secure monitoring and endpoint protection of all of your assets. So all of your end users in their homes, um, all of the physical devices, the, the uh, mobile devices, you know, so um, zero trust is going to protect all the different services and like, you know, target infrastructure and applications and things like that. But if you think about the devices and how the data is protected, you know, the things you have to think about are how do you protect the secrets, the passwords, the credentials that are being used by the users? And then how do you protect their physical devices using that endpoint protection? You know, if I ask you to uh, look into your crystal ball, which I acknowledge is an unfair thing to do, but <laughs> but I, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, what do you suppose we're going to see this coming year in terms of, of hot trends? Is there anything that you think is going to rise to the top? Yeah, well, I think that last week was a great indication of what's what's to come. You know, there's a, a, you know, a huge vulnerability on the Internet um, was, was released and disclosed um, with some open source software. And I think what we're going to see is a lot more research going into vulnerabilities, the low-hanging fruit, you know, things like that. And so um, I think attackers are going to look for those types of attack vectors, and especially with what happened recently with Log4j and those types of issues where there's potentially massive impact for a very small amount of effort. That's what these... Um, attackers are going to go after. So I think we're going to see more of that. But at the same time, we're going to see more protection is being put in place and more, um, hopefully more effort and funding into uh, protecting these open source assets, things that um, are being used by enterprises all around the world. 
As we head into the new year, are, are you optimistic that uh, we're going to be able to to gain some ground on these things? Well, I think so. You know, there's a lot of a lot of um, work being done by white hat hackers, you'd call them, you know, or people that are the good people doing research work and vulnerability research. So that whole space is expanding. So there's a lot of good people doing um, research to protect, you know, organizations. But, you know, I think um, just increased expansion of of the, the good hackers, you know, the white hat hackers and more attention being paid into the the utilities and the services that are open source, especially that are being utilized by most most companies around the world, protecting that is going to be something that uh, is going to be critical. And then also, you know, as as zero trust products come onto the market, um, especially around password management like Keeper and um, secure data management, zero knowledge management of data is um, is critical. You know, who understanding where is your data? Is it encrypted? Who's protecting it? What systems do they have in place? What what um, what infrastructure are they using? You know, so I think more and more companies are just understanding the need for products like that, and there's a large expansion of these privacy-focused products. And that's a wrap. We'd like to thank Kevin McGee, the CSO of Microsoft Canada and Craig Lurie, the CTO and co-founder of Keeper Security, for being on the show. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about what we covered on this CyberWire X episode or suggestions for topics in future shows, send them to cwx at thecyberwire, all one word, dot com. CyberWire X is a production of The CyberWire and is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Datatribe, where they are co-building the next generation of cybersecurity startups and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. And on behalf of Dave Bittner, my co-host, this is Rick Howard signing off. Thanks for listening.